Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host and guide through the world of the energy transition, Sam Morgan. This week we are talking about the Energy Charter Treaty, an international agreement between 50 countries that was initially designed to integrate Eastern European and former Soviet bloc energy markets into their Western equivalents. It has since evolved into more of an investment protection framework, offering a shield behind which energy companies hide in order to seek compensation from national governments. There have been notable examples of both fossil fuel and renewable energy firms seeking damages by citing the ECT's principles. But momentum is building among its member countries to leave the treaty and reduce their exposure to legal claims. Earlier in July, the European Commission unveiled a plan to take the EU as a whole out of the ECT. Major countries like France, Germany and Spain have already signalled that they intend to do so unilaterally while Italy has already left. So what is the big fuss about the Energy Charter Treaty, an agreement that has been labelled by some as a chimera of the energy industry and an outdated, expensive relic of the past? To learn more, today I'm joined by Fabian Flus, Investment Policy Lead at PowerShift, an association that aims to accelerate the energy transition. Before we get into today's show, it's time for the Policy Dispatch Quiz question. Today, I'm asking you, There are 158 ECT investment arbitration cases currently open. What percentage of those are to do with renewable energy? Is it A, 1%, B, 17%, C, 38%, or D, 59%? Answer after the show. Uh, So Fabian, thank you so much for uh, joining this episode for this discussion about the Energy Charter Treaty. It's quite a current issue, uh, having come back into the news a little recently. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you about why this is important and how it is um, linked to the wider energy transition. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me, Sam. If we start with the basics, I guess, um, because maybe a lot of people won't actually know what we're talking about here. What actually is the Energy Charter Treaty uh, and what is its purpose? So the Energy Charter Treaty is an international investment agreement from the 1990s. Uh, It was concluded between uh, countries in Western Europe, um, all current EU member states um, and uh, countries in um, East, uh, in Central Asia, in West Asia, and now also parts of uh, of East Asia. And the initial idea was to um, ensure that European investments in oil and gas uh, in Central Asia are protected through an international agreement, because after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of uncertainty around investing in those sectors in in that region. And so uh, European countries want to have um, a treaty that protects their their investors, investors from their countries. And that's what the Energy Charter Treaty does. It's an uh, agreement meant to protect uh, investments abroad. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, it's proving to be rather controversial lately. I mean, it seems to have been quite controversial for as long as I've been reporting on energy and climate, which is longer than I care to say at this point. Um, what is stoking this controversy about this treaty? What are the um, things that people don't like about it, essentially? Yeah, so we might need to delve first for a little bit into the way this investment protection works. Um, so if an investor feels treated unfairly by a country, uh, what they can do is they can uh, start a uh, arbitration uh, proceeding against that country. And that runs in a separate um, legal process that's outside of national courts, or international courts. There are ad hoc, ad hoc tribunals where the investor and the state nominate uh, arbitrators to um, decide on that specific case. Um, and there, there's a lot of criticism around these tribunals in general, not only in the Energy Charter Treaty, uh, which is that they are very favorable to investors, um, that they have a very broad conception of property rights. So if a state regulates a certain company or a sector, uh, that can lead to these claims, um, that the amount of compensation that companies can win through these um, tribunals are very, very high and often higher than what they could win in national courts, and that the entire system and the people who, who arbitrate in it uh, are biased in favor of investors. And uh, because it's such a powerful legal uh, instrument, because the um, decisions of these tribunals, they can be uh, enforced anywhere in the world, and um, they also basically can't be appealed. Um, it's a very powerful instrument in the hand of, of private actors. Uh, and that can make government actually change their decision or adjust their decisions, uh, even without a company winning such a case. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, pretty early on, we saw uh, cases emerging from the Energy Charter Treaty that uh, weren't probably initially foreseen. Um, so the idea was uh, if a European oil or gas company um, invests um, somewhere in Central Asia and the government nationalizes the assets, they would go to these tribunals and um, try to uh, reclaim some of the, the assets they've lost or get money back for them. Uh, what happened uh, instead very often is that uh, companies use that, for example, in the case of environmental regulation and um, that they would uh, challenge those regulations um, in tribunals um, and uh, sometimes win or uh, uh, win concessions from states and not necessarily uh, in Central Asia, but um, uh, in particular also in, in within the EU. Mm -hmm. um, there were famous cases against Germany and other countries, and that led to a lot of controversy around that treaty. Mm -hmm. And presumably that is something that has always been in the back of the minds of governments when they've been thinking about setting energy and climate policy, right? That we can't do this because we are part of this uh, ECT that will make it very financially disadvantageous for us if we do a coal phase out five years earlier or, or something like that. Exactly. And uh, we, we could go into some of those specifics of some of those cases, but in particular with the, with the coal phase out, we, we've seen um, how that treaty then interacts with government decision making and um, definitely tilting the, the balance of power in favor of, uh, of the companies holding currently assets in, in the coal sector. Um, 
Is it just um, fossil fuel assets that are protected under this treaty, or is it every kind of power generation or you know, energy um, in that case? So, you know, are we talking about renewables as well, or is it mostly fossil fuel? Yeah. So um, the treaty is specifically on the energy sector, um, mm. which is unusual for such an investment treaty. Usually, they cover all economic sectors, um, but the, the Energy Charter Treaty only covers the energy sector. And there's a specific list of the uh, energy materials or the processes that are protected through um, this treaty. And they include um, oil and gas, uh, as well as coal and nuclear, and um, power generation from renewable energy, uh, in particular wind and solar. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some uh, sectors that aren't covered or haven't been covered so far. Um, they include um, biomass, biogas, um, CCS, and hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And in an attempt to to reform the treaty, um, they were actually included in um, in the coverage of the treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the the old Energy Charter Treaty, the one that's currently in force, doesn't um, include those. Mm-hmm. But then the Energy Charter Treaty that was negotiated recently and was uh, up for um, a decision in the European Council um, would have uh, included new uh, new energy sources. And um, we, we have seen quite a few cases in relation to renewable uh, energy generation as well, in particular against Spain, um, when Spain reduced the incentives uh, for renewables after the... Um, or in the course of the financial crisis, um, when it was um, uh, facing budget shortfalls and uh, had a much, much higher uptake of um, uh, of the incentives and, and build-out of renewables than it had um, anticipated. Uh, there were a lot of cases generated through that uh, cutback on the renewable incentives, and um, there are a lot of uh, ongoing legal fights between Spain and those investors. You mentioned that um, attempts have been made to update this treaty that you know is, is looking very old and outdated by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but as we are recording this, the European Commission uh, recently proposed, uh, um, how should we say, a, a joint exit for all of the European Union countries that are part of it out of this treaty. I think Italy is one of the countries that has already left. Um, but now there's this plan on the table where the EU would no longer be part of this. Um, is that because then that we have got to a point where it can't be reformed to any satisfactory conclusion and now this is really the only option that we need to scrap this treaty and either do a new one, I guess, or just find another way to protect investments? Or you know, Is this the, the end of the line as far as you, you, you read it? Yeah, I, th- I think our assessment is that that this is basically the end of the line. So in 2018, a reform process of this treaty started and um, the negotiations uh, for reforming the treaty uh, started a little bit later, but um, there was a multi-year process negotiating a reform to the treaty. And um, there are certain elements um, that have been improved there are some that have been tweaked, and there are some, in our view, that have been made worse. Um, and um, maybe I'll just quickly run through through a couple of them. So mm-hmm. um, 
the EU tweaked some of the language that investors can recur to when they start these cases. Um, because this whole system um, of investment arbitration that we've been talking about has become so controversial, the EU uh, made some, um, in our view, very small changes to the way those treaties are worded, and they mostly managed to include those changes in um, in the reform of the Energy Charter Treaty. Mm -hmm. And how far they would actually make any difference in front of an arbitration tribunal is very uncertain um, because they haven't really been tested out so far. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the larger reform process that the EU has initiated in that area uh, included swapping those uh, private arbitrators, which are often um, lawyers who work on the side as lawyers for those companies, um, but also sit in those cases basically as judges, uh, to change them for a new system that is more institutionalized and uh, is not quite a court, but resembles more a court as we know it. And that's something that uh, has been at the core of the EU's attempt to reform this investment arbitration system, but it was not even part of the discussions around the Energy Charter Treaty. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, even after the reform, the, the same panel of three uh, private individuals, as I said, often corporate lawyers, would have been the ones making the decision whether a climate policy infringed on, a, on an investor's property rights according to that treaty. Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned, um, the treaty would have expanded to new um, energy sources and materials. And in our view, that's particularly challenging because we've seen in the renewables rollout in, in Europe that um, it's often very hard to predict cost curves and how much uh, state support is actually necessary for these technologies. Um, and uh, some of the ones that have been included, like biogas, biomass, uh, are also problematic from a sustainability point of view. Um, and so uh, including them and kind of uh, tying government's hands in and the future regulation of them would have been very detrimental. Mm -hmm. uh, what the EU did achieve was um, reducing the coverage for fossil fuels, um, uh, but the phase-out time was so long um, that in effect it probably wouldn't have made a big difference because right. we see now, uh, so the, the coverage of fossil fuels would have ended in the, in the 2030s uh, for existing investments. And we already see now cases emerging for policy that's only starting to become uh, effective in the 2030s. So basically, by the time Europe wants to be um, uh, carbon neutral, mm -hmm. uh, that's about as long as the coverage of, of that treaty would have lasted for fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. in that sense, it wouldn't have made much of a difference for the ability to implement effective climate policy. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, in our view, this reform was uh, had so many shortcomings that it wasn't worth it for countries to stay in that treaty. Mm -hmm. And a number of EU member states announced that they would withdraw because it wasn't in line with the Paris Agreement that included France, um, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, um, and Spain uh, mm -hmm. early on. And then uh, others followed, like um, uh, Slovenia, uh, Luxembourg, and more recently, Denmark and Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and Poland did as well. So now we have uh, nine EU member states that have already decided to leave the treaty. Um, Italy has had left already in 2016. Um, so uh, th all the large member states have uh, gone out of the ECT or have announced that they will. 
-hmm. uh, and there's no majority for adopting the reform in the council. Um, so there's currently no way forward. And um, that's why the European Commission now uh, proposed to actually uh, take the entire EU uh, and all member states out of the ECT um, mm -hmm. as a way to, to end this um, uh, deadlock in a way and to, um, to actually uh, yeah, uh, get countries out of, uh, of the treaty and, and regain some of the regulatory freedom. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. So this consensus then has built that this is no longer particularly beneficial for anyone involved and is also quite damaging in terms of climate policy, energy policy, and so on. What obstacles then are there ahead um, for this exit? I mean, if the Commission does propose this, has proposed it, and then um, European Council members, its qualified, qualified majority, right, would have to uh, agree on it, um, if that all goes through, is that the end of the story or are we talking about, you know, grandfathering and sunset clauses and, you know, a long, slow exit? I mean, I'm from the UK, so I, all, I know about, you know, slow exits from a European Union uh, um, structure. Um, so, yeah, it, how, how long would it take? Yeah, so there, there are currently, I'd say, two, two main challenges. One is the, um, uh, the situation in the council where in the past we haven't had a qualified majority for an exit of uh, the entire EU. Mm -hmm. um, th there have been four member states that didn't agree to uh, going ahead with a reform of the treaty. Um, um, and as I said, there are about uh, 10 member states that have left the treaty or have announced that they will leave. Um, but there's a certain hesitation of countries to force others to leave an international agreement. Um, and that's um, why it's proven difficult for the Commission to construct that majority, uh, which is, in my interpretation, has less to do with the specifics of the Energy Charter Treaty and the content of the Energy Charter Treaty, and has become more a question of principle. Can countries be forced to leave an international agreement they want to remain member of? Um, mm. And there are a couple of countries uh, in the EU that um, still want to uh, stay member of the Energy Charter Treaty. Uh, which includes uh, Cyprus, um, uh, which has been used uh, by investors as a uh, base or as their um, uh, country of registration to start uh, in, uh, investment arbitrations against other countries. And some right. of the uh, largest um, uh, proceedings we've seen under the ECT have been started by uh, mailbox companies or by the owners of mailbox companies in mm. Cyprus. So um, that, there might be a certain rationale there why the Cypriot government is very hesitant to leave. And uh, Finland, for example, has always been very much in favor of, um, uh, of these kind of agreements uh, and uh, yeah, has also been very skeptical of leaving. And it's, uh, in my view, still unclear in how far the the majority in the council will come together in the next weeks. But now with the commission uh, table, uh, a proposal on the table, that's the 
realistically also the only way forward. Um, mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's it's hard to see how how a different proposal will emerge, which would have would create a legally very difficult situation if we have some countries leaving and others staying in. Um, but the second uh, challenge you um, you mentioned is the sunset clause. Um, so a provision in the treaty that um, ensures that the treaty um, is applicable for another 20 years after a country leaves. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that's a real problem, these kind of clauses, because they can um, keep countries within a treaty that they actually want to leave. What the Commission is proposing is that to deactivate that clause within the EU and between all member states, um, because um, in the Commission's view, this treaty should have never been applicable within the EU. The European Court of Justice has said that it's not applicable within the EU. Mm -hmm. And so um, the Commission thinks that at least cases between EU investors and EU member states can be avoided that way. And they are the the largest um, source for, for investment uh, treaty claims, more than 66% uh, of the cases that we've seen are from uh, EU investors against EU member states. And if we can take them out, that's the largest chunk of um, the Energy Charter Treaty cases that we've seen. What we've seen is that there, with the EU being the most important member of the Energy Charter Treaty, um, and the, the kind of driver behind that treaty for many years, um, and also the driver of that reform, it does seem that if the EU should exit, this, the future of the entire treaty is in doubt. Uh, so we've seen um, a negotiator from Switzerland complaining that if the EU leaves, the whole treaty might collapse. Uh, the EU um, provides most of the funding for the secretariat for the treaty, um, and uh, the secretariat would have to be cut down significantly um, if it's, uh, if the EU uh, exits. Um, so that there are a lot of factors at play. And in the UK, we also see a, a discussion currently about the membership. Um, the, the chair of the Net Zero Committee has recommended for the UK to leave. Um, mm -hmm. The Liberal Democrats have adopted that as their decision, and the Committee on Climate Change recently uh, wow. issued its annual report, which also recommended for the UK uh, to leave the Energy Charter Treaty. Um, so, in our view, if the EU leaves, there could be a real dynamic of that treaty kind of falling apart mm. and not being be, being applicable anymore. Um, like a domino effect, almost that it just wouldn't be really worth. Or even sustainable. Then um, I was going. I was actually going to ask you that. Um, can we order, already kind of speculate what this would mean for, like the EU's closest partners, like candidate countries, for example, some of which who are part of it. I guess Albania, North Macedonia, and so on. Um, would that be then uh, inherent on them to then take a decision to leave as well, or this is kind of you know politics that we can't really get into because it hasn't happened yet. I think if if the EU uh, leaves as a bloc, I think there will be pressure on um, uh, potential accession countries to not be a member of the ECT anymore by the time they exceed. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 the membership in the ECT brings a whole host of legal problems between European law, international investment law, um, there has been really thorny for individual countries, but also for the Commission, uh, 
which has a lot of headaches around the way that the um, uh, Energy Charter Treaty, for example, infringes on its uh, purview of uh, state aid rules, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the legal problems are so numerous that um, I would assume that the Commission would uh, expect of countries to to leave that treaty before they uh, accede to the EU. Um, and secondly, the EU has been um, a proponent so far of um, expanding that treaty to uh, new regions in the world um, and has financed some of the activity of promoting this treaty, in particular in Africa. Mm. Um, there has been uh, a lot of promotion within the ECOWAS, the um, um, West African community, but also to East African countries. Uh, and some of them have been on the verge of, of, of joining the Energy Charter Treaty. Um, and I think the rationale was to attract European investment through this treaty, for which there's never been an empirical basis for that claim. Uh-huh. But uh, I think that might also then uh, become a lot less attractive for countries um, in Africa um, to, to join a treaty that, that the EU has just left. And um, yeah, in our view, that would be uh, very important because while these investment arbitration cases have been very difficult and challenging for governments uh, here in Europe. Um, they have been much more devastating for countries in the global south who often have problems even financing those expensive um, proceedings. Um, and so, um, yeah, not joining the treaty would be a, um, a very good thing for them. Mm-hmm. If we, you know, if we put the, the idea that um, the EU will exit from this at some point in the near future or longer, uh, depending on, you know, the things you mentioned coming to pass. Um, what impact do you think that it leaving and having left will then have on wider climate policy within the EU? Do you see this as like a you know a twenty kilogram weight that the EU has been dragging around behind it, and suddenly you cut the chain and you know bringing forward climate neutrality by five or ten years or coal phase outs? This kind of thing becomes much more um, politically possible. Yeah, so I think it would relieve governments, um, uh, ministries, uh, uh, civil servants within the EU of the burden to think about ways of implementing um, climate policy in a way that avoids these kind of investment arbitration claims. Mm -hmm. Um, What we've seen in practice is that especially once a particular government has been hit with such a claim, that they've become more careful around energy policy issues, that they uh, choose uh, a certain path that minimizes um, potential liability under the Energy Charter Treaty, but is not necessarily the most efficient or effective or climate-friendly path. Um, Or they um, uh, spend a lot of money voluntarily on compensating companies to avoid uh, claims. So I think leaving the treaty will give them a lot more freedom to um, pursue climate policy in a way that is that, that, that is most effective or efficient or fair mm-hmm. uh, and that doesn't um, uh, focus so much on reducing liability under the um, another energy charter treaty. Mm-hmm. If it would move um, targets forward, I find that hard to judge. I think, um, yeah, the the targets discussion has been less connected to the Energy Charter Treaty. It's been a lot more about the implementation of 
of climate targets and what tools we use and and how much we compensate uh, companies, for example. Mm -hmm. well, you mentioned at the beginning that there have been some uh, notable uh, case examples of you know the the ECT um, being involved with these different things, and one of them, I, I guess, is in Germany as well with RWE, right, billion euros or something in compensation that's being claimed for coal phase outs and things. Maybe you could just sort of go through that particular case um, in a little more detail to kind of show really what we're talking about here. This kind of like chimera of investment uh, protection that is just simply not working with the the reality we're faced with, I guess. Yeah, so um, in Germany, there was a decision to to phase out coal um, by 2038, um, which was uh, very late and has since been brought forward, at least for some of the coal um, uh, coal mining and, and, and um, coal power generation. Um, but as part of this... Um, uh, exit uh, from coal there were negotiations or there was a um, a discussion within the government which path to choose for the exit and and this is really where the ECT comes in uh, so one way would have been to legislate an exit um, in parliament and set clear dates uh, for the coal companies to to exit uh, um, or to, to stop mining and, and burning coal. <laughs> Um, what the government chose instead was to enter into negotiations with the companies um, to, in, way, in a way, find an amicable solution that the companies um, would agree to. Uh, and so that gave a lot of bargaining power to the companies um, to uh, actually um, be involved in setting the terms of the coal exit. Mm -hmm. The reason why the German government chose that path is because as part of these negotiations, the companies signed a contract where they would say they would they wouldn't use the energy charter treaty to challenge the government decisions around the coal phase out. So um, that was the only way to kind of uh, prevent preemptively uh, or, or preempt uh, an energy charter case um, uh, by those two coal companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and what the German government uh, has said um, in in return for the waiver um, that those companies gave to an energy charter treaty case, um, the compensation for the companies uh, was increased. Um, and so uh, in the end, the, the, the total amount that, that they received was really high. It was 4.35 billion euros. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of independent experts um, from think tanks or, or universities have said that those um, compensation amounts have been far too high um, and um, uh, not appropriate for, for, for what the companies uh, gave in return, uh, looking at the, the phase-out dates, et cetera, for, um, for the coal mining and, and, and coal power generation. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, in, the, the main thing the government got in return was uh, avoiding an ECT claim and also a, a contractual um, obligation of the companies to not start them. And in our view, that really symbolizes the, the, the bargaining power that treaty gives to companies. Mm -hmm. um, they could uh, increase the amount of compensation they, they claim by, by then giving up their, their right to sue under the ECT. Mm -hmm. And um, those compensations have been so high that the commission has started um, uh, looking at them in detail under state aid investigations, and there are a lot of signals 
that the commission will not okay them because um, th they would be seen as, as uh, illegal state aid um, just because they've been so much higher than what would have been uh, reasonable um, mm -hmm. for, for, for this kind of coal exit. Mm -hmm. um, and one reason the government was so afraid of, of a claim was because one of the companies involved in those negotiations in Germany has actually sued the Netherlands uh, under the Energy Charter Treaty for a coal exit by 2030 because the Dutch government refused these kind of negotiations. They refused to increase the amount of uh, compensation, uh, basically taxpayer money for those companies. Um, they, they are paying something, but not as much as, a, as RWE and the other company, Unipa, had hoped. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that there, there have been two um, ECT cases against the Dutch coal phaser, which in uh, total demanded uh, 2.4 billion euros um, from the Dutch government. And the German government saw that uh, and decided to go down a different route and basically <laughs> voluntarily pay a high compensation uh -huh. to avoid one of these complicated and costly legal proceedings under the ECT. Mm -hmm. So under the situation you described um, that the Commission is trying to bring into, into force where the ECT would not, the sunset clauses would not apply within the EU, um, how would that work in practice then? So with this German case where you have a German company basically threatening to sue the German government over its climate policy, that would no longer be, that would not be covered by the sunset clauses or what, how would that work? A, a non-EU company would be able to? Or... Yeah, so um, in the German case, we don't know exactly um, what RWE, which is headquartered in Germany, um, if they would have tried to have recourse to the, or, or use the ECT, uh, the Energy Charter Treaty. There's a second, um, a coal company uh, which is owned by a Czech investor. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is better evidence that that Czech investor, because the, the Energy Charter Treaty protects foreign investment but not national investment, that that investor was actively looking into ways of using the, the ECT against Germany, just like the German company RWE used it against the Netherlands. Um, in the view of the Commission, the German government and the Dutch government, all those cases are illegal because they're um, uh, within the EU, uh, mm -hmm. from EU companies against uh, uh, EU states. And that's also the view of the European Court of Justice. But those arbitration tribunals have um, disregarded um, the opinion of the European Court of Justice or the European governments on this and just proceeded anyways with those cases. Um, and so um, what the commission is uh, proposing to do now is to um, basically have an agreement between the EU member states um, that modifies uh, the Energy Charter Treaty to say that the treaty uh, does not apply between EU member states. Mm -hmm. uh, and to do that um, um, while or before exiting um, to... Um, to signal very clearly once again that this uh, treaty should not be used between um, EU member states. Um, but in the end, it's often those tribunals that decide themselves if they um, have jurisdiction and um, in a way they have a self-interest in declaring their own jurisdiction because that means the case goes ahead and they're getting paid for it, etc. Um, but the Commission and, and the EU is looking for ways to making this uh, more difficult, more challenging, both in a legal way, but also in a practical way to, to drive down the number of those cases. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe just one final question as, as we're running out of time, unfortunately. I think we probably went over it already, but just to clarify, because it's a nice way to maybe end the show, what would be the main benefit for the green transition of the EU leaving the Energy Charter Treaty or even of you know any country leaving the Energy Charter Treaty in the long run? So it gives country um, a broader suit of policy options for implementing their energy policy um, where they can uh, take um, all the stakeholders' uh, concerns and um, interests equally into account. Uh, so it moves energy policy away from a situation where a foreign investor could threaten a legal case if their own interests are affected. Um, and that enables governments to um, act more quickly, uh, to implement policy in a way that's fairer. Um, so, for example, by um, compensating the asset owners of fossil fuel infrastructure less and using that money um, uh, for something else instead, um, and um, to respond more directly to also um, uh, demands from uh, from their own parliaments or from from their population in, in terms of the energy projects that go that are going ahead in their countries, because a lot of the cases we've seen have involved um, protests um, or communities that um, um, are skeptical of an energy project and um, yeah the energy charter treaty being uh, another tool to pressure governments to to go ahead with those projects or to to issue licenses for them so it rebalances um, power relations in the in the energy transition and uh, yeah in our view it will help to to actually make the energy transition more sustainable um, more popular and feasible in the long run and uh, hopefully also quicker <laughs> Fabian, I'd really like to thank you for joining the show today. I think you really helped explain what I have always found to be a very complex topic, but uh, a very important one. Um, and it's definitely one I think we at Foresight are going to be keeping an eye on, especially as we get to perhaps a you know critical juncture in the, the story of this particular aspect of the green transition. So really thank you for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. That was a really interesting look at what is only going to be an increasingly controversial issue in the energy transition, I think. There's definitely one to keep an eye on. Now, before the show, I asked you, of the 158 open cases lodged under the Energy Charter Treaty, how many are linked to renewable energy? 1, 17, 38, or 59%? The correct answer is 59%, with solar power one of the standout subjects of those cases. Thank you once again for tuning in to The Policy Dispatch. I'll be back very soon with another episode and another dive into the fascinating world of the energy transition. Mm-hmm.